Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Biden goes big to the tune of $33 billion. The lead starts right now. The president's massive request, $33 billion to help Ukraine defend itself as explosions rock the capital city of Kyiv. Plus, has the time come for kids finally? More than two years into the COVID pandemic, Moderna becomes the first drug maker to ask for emergency use for a COVID vaccine ready for kids six months to five years old. Now many parents want to know how quickly can Moderna get FDA approval and A new and potentially dangerous online craze, daredevil pilots on a mission for social media clicks. But now the feds are cracking down. Welcome to the Lean Up Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and a massive request by President Joe Biden, who today asked Congress for 33 billion additional dollars to help support Ukraine. A clear sign of how Mr. Biden sees this war as existential to democracies beyond just Ukraine. The cost of this fight uh, is not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country, or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. This enormous proposal is now in the hands of Congress, where already some Republicans are raising concerns about the size and scope of the package. According to the White House, the proposal includes more than $20 billion in military and security aid, $8.5 billion in economic help for the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian civilians, and $3 billion for humanitarian assistance. Ukrainian leaders say more aid and more weapons cannot arrive soon enough, with Russia intensifying its attacks in the east and the south of that country. Mariupol police say the city's steel plant, where hundreds of innocent civilians as well as soldiers are sheltering, Mariupol is suffering the heaviest airstrike so far from the Russians, they say, and the U.S. says it has credible information. But Russian forces executed Ukrainians who were attempting to surrender. This happened near Donetsk in the east, we're told. Also this afternoon, the mayor of Kiev confirming two Russian strikes in the Ukrainian capital right after a meeting between the Ukrainian president and the U.N. secretary general. Let's get straight to CNN's Sam Kiley, who's live for us in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Sam, the U.S. says... It also has credible reports of Ukrainians killed execution style with their hands bound. How how does that claim fit in with the larger picture of Russian tactics in this war? Well, this claim coming from the United States new ambassador for international human rights, uh, Beth Van Schaak. Now, she's saying that they have this credible evidence. You rightly point out there, Jake, of a group of fighters, of uh, soldiers from the Ukrainian armed forces attempting to surrender. Clearly, if the allegations are correct, uh, successfully surrendering in that they these bodies were found with their hands tied and then they were shot execution style the uh, nature of that evidence we have not yet learned from the United States and of course we have had no corroboration here on the ground but it is the sort of thing now that one would be 
uh, it would be natural, frankly, to expect after what happened in Bucha with the murder of civilians in an area under Russia control, uh, with recent reporting now from uh, Anderson Cooper and others that uh, the uh, murders there have been very carefully catalogued, uh, the naming indeed of 10 people involved in uh, human rights abuses there from the Russian armed forces already being named by investigators here in Ukraine. It should be understood that this is the sort of thing that the Russians were quite likely to do, frankly, given the profligate use of uh, bombardment of civilian areas, all of which, of course, are illegal under international law, Jake. Kramatorsk, the city where you are, uh, would be Russia's strategic prize in the battle for eastern Ukraine. Uh, are the Russian forces making any progress on the ground near you? Yes, they are, Jake. They've captured uh, a day and a half ago or so the town of Rubizne. They're pressing on a town called Liman. Those are two towns that are to the north. Essentially what the Russians are doing, if you can imagine a, a map of Ukraine, it's sort of got an area like that. Uh, we're surrounded uh, on three sides. It's a big area, though. The Russians are fighting across a front of more than 500 miles. But coming in from the north, from the town of Izium, they are trying to press down uh, towards the southeast, towards my location now. And they're also trying to cut this location off with a thrust due south, perhaps potentially trying to meet up with their troops if their troops can be released or if they have advances up from Mariupol. Now, that's quite a big ambition. But in the meantime, what they're doing is incrementally trying to capture towns along the northern side of the Donetsk River. That arguably could be a lateral, natural line of defence uh, for the Ukrainians. And the concern, I think, for supporters of Ukraine in the international community and the Ukrainian government itself is that the Russians may, uh, even if the Russians were stopped at the river, they will have expanded territory under pro-Russian control dig in for the long term and prove very difficult to dislodge. And one of the reasons the Ukrainians are so keen to see this bill for extra money going through the US Congress and to see the additional money being promised from other European allies is that they know that they have a relatively small amount of time before the Russians consolidate to get that more effective, more modern, frankly superior weaponry into the hands of the outnumbered Ukrainian soldiers before it's too late and the Russians begin to start overwhelming them. At the moment, it's fairly evenly balanced, but it is just about, at the moment, in the Russians' uh, favour. They are slowly advancing, Jake. CNN Sam Kiley, live for us in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. President Biden today called on Congress to approve the additional $33 billion in aid for Ukraine, quote, as quickly as possible. CNN's Caitlin Collins now takes a closer look at what is in this funding request and the White House push to get it across the finish line. Basically, we're out of money. President Biden asking Congress for a $33 billion boost to Ukraine. It's going to keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption to the brave Ukrainian fighters and continue delivering economic and humanitarian assistance to the Ukrainian people. The price tag for the new funding is more than double the last aid package and would last Ukraine for the next five months. As Biden says, the cost of this fight isn't cheap. But caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. Of the $33 billion that Biden is asking Congress for, over $20 billion is for military assistance like weapons and ammunition. $8.5 billion is for economic assistance to keep the Ukrainian government running. 
and another $3 billion for humanitarian assistance. If approved, it would bring the total of U.S. spending on the war in Ukraine to nearly $50 billion. We're not attacking Russia. We're helping Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression. Biden urging lawmakers to act quickly, but it remains to be seen if his request is tied up in deep disagreements over COVID-19 funding and immigration. On both Ukraine funding and COVID funding, Republican obstruction will not serve the American people. Today, Biden also asked for the power to sell off the assets of Russian oligarchs and use the proceeds to help Ukraine. We're going to seize their yachts their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains. After rejecting Moscow's claim that NATO was fighting a proxy war with Russia, Biden also condemned the nuclear saber-rattling from high-ranking Russians. No one should be making idle comments about the use of nuclear weapons or the possibility they need to use that. It's irresponsible. Biden speaking hours after Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine he freed from Russian detention, touched down on U.S. soil for the first time since 2019. And Jake, when it comes to this $33 billion request that President Biden has made, the White House is not putting a deadline on when they want Congress to pass that new number. Jen Psaki did say they only have about $250 million left in drawdown in the authority that President Biden has basically to send more military assistance to Ukraine. Of course, they just sent several packages as well, so they have a little bit for the next several weeks. Jake, one thing she did say that will be very important for lawmakers who are listening in is that they don't necessarily believe it needs to be tied to the COVID-19 funding. That has been something that could complicate getting that passed if it is tied to that. Though, Jake, of course, how Congress handles it remains to be seen. Kaylin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much for joining us now to discuss State Department spokesman Ned Price. Ned, thanks for joining us. So this is obviously a massive ask, $33 billion. Senate Republican Whip John Thune said there is big interest amongst his party to give Ukraine more aid, but that, quote, these numbers kind of get eye-popping after a while. Uh, do you have any guarantees Congress is going to pass this? Well, Jake, we know that Congress has generous, generously already supported our strategy in Ukraine, and we're requesting this sum of money because it will allow us to continue that strategy. And it's a strategy that has proven uh, and demonstrably proven effective. Uh, Just think about where we are. We're more than two months into this conflict. Uh, We have every indication to believe that Vladimir Putin within a couple days uh, or a matter of a few weeks thought that he would essentially be the de facto leader of Ukraine with a proxy government installed. Instead, his forces have been pushed out of large parts of the country. His forces have lost the Battle of Kiev. His forces have been forced to concentrate uh, in the south and the east. Uh, The fact is that Ukrainians have been able, with their grit and determination and courage, have been able to repel Russian forces. They are winning these battles. Uh, But the key enabler, a key enabler in all of this, has been the massive amount of security assistance that we've been able to provide, $3.8 billion from the United States alone since February 24th when the invasion began. As you heard from Caitlin, much of this money will go to additional security Mm -hmm. assistance, $20.5 billion, uh, to provide the Ukrainians over over the coming months with what they will need for the battle in the east, the battle in the south, uh, the battle in the Donbass, uh, where the Russians are now concentrating their firepower. Right. And you refer to the United States as a key enabler of the Ukrainian uh, military, the Ukrainian people. Um, Let's talk about the key enabler of the Russians, because today Russian state energy giant Gazprom reported record profits in 2021. Isn't it just a fact that, that this war is likely going to continue until the Europeans stop paying, uh, I've heard estimates of up to a billion dollars a day 
to Russia for Russian fuel. Well, we've already seen significant steps. And of course, the United States has taken significant steps in the form of an executive order President Biden signed a number of weeks ago. But we've also been clear that this country with our energy infrastructure and what we have here uh, can do things that other countries can't. And that includes countries in Europe. But still, uh, we've seen countries in the European Union uh, take important steps away from importing Russian fossil fuels. We have a two-pronged strategy. In the near term, we are surging assets and energy, including liquid natural gas, and oil uh, to our partners and allies in Europe. Uh, We're doing that including by undertaking coordinated drawdowns from strategic petroleum reserves. We're doing this uh, with countries around the world. Uh, That's in the near term to offset any energy price shocks and to make sure uh, that the global supply of energy uh, is steady. We're also fortunate that we've emerged through this winter. And so as the temperatures get warmer, uh, the dependence on Russian oil uh, in the coming days and weeks will lessen even further. But over the longer term, uh, we have established a program, a task force, in fact, uh, with the European Union uh, to affect this transition away from Russian fossil fuels uh, fully and to move in the direction uh, of renewables. We want to see to it that no country, whether that's in Europe or anywhere else around the globe, Mm -hmm. uh, can ever again be held hostage uh, to Russian energy flows. We've seen Russia weaponize energy flows before. It's precisely what they've done to Ukraine. We want to see to it that they can't do this ever again. Trevor Reed is now back in the U.S. after nearly three years of being detained in Russia, which is great news. Um, But we should note U.S. citizen Paul Whelan, uh, another former Marine who is still imprisoned, imprisoned in Russia, He released a statement through his family saying, quote, why was I left behind? While I'm pleased Trevor is home with his family, I have been held on a fictitious charge of espionage for 40 months. The world knows this charge was fabricated. Why hasn't more been done to secure my release? Um, Do you have an answer for Mr. Whelan and his family or, for that matter, for Brittany Griner and her family? Well, Paul Whelan's right. He has been held on a fictitious charge uh, for 40 months. It's a case we're working on. We're working uh, very concertedly on the case of of Brittany Griner as well to provide her with the support she needs. Look, this president has made a clear commitment to bring home Americans who are unjustly detained, held hostage uh, around the world. We made good on that commitment once again yesterday. Uh, That adds to the countries from which we brought home uh, Americans who have been unjustly detained from Afghanistan, from Venezuela, uh, from Haiti, from Burma, and as of yesterday, Russia. Uh, Trevor Reed is now reunited with his family in Texas, where he arrived early this morning. But we made very clear yesterday that our work is not finished. It is not finished in Russia. It is not finished in countries across the world uh, that are unjustly holding Americans against their will. When it comes to Paul Whelan, we are working with his family. We are doing everything we can uh, to try to uh, get him, see him released from Russian custody as soon as we can. Uh, When it comes to Brittany Griner, we are providing her uh, and working closely with her team, with her network, with the WNBA, providing precisely uh, all the forms of support we can. And in fact, a senior embassy official was able to visit her in recent weeks. We're continuing to press the Russians to live up uh, to their obligation to provide us with regular, consistent consular access uh, to Brittany Griner and to every American, for that matter, in pretrial detention. State Department spokesman Ned Price, thank you so much. Appreciate it. There's also the emotional scars of this war. A 12-year-old girl kidnapped and rescued how this invasion is already leaving a lasting impact on some of its youngest victims, plus the U.S. economy unexpectedly shrinking for the first time since the early days of the COVID pandemic, what this might mean, as some economists warn, a recession may be near. 
And we're back with our world lead. At least 1.6 million children, 1.6 million, have been forced to leave Ukraine because of Putin's brutal war, according to the United Nations. The U.N. Refugee Agency says it's absolutely critical to keep families together for the well-being of the kids, especially. Sadly, many families are still torn apart. CNN's Matt Rivers now follows the heartbreaking story of a 12-year-old Ukrainian orphan taken by Russians. She is now miraculously safe and healing from her physical injuries, but with lasting emotional scars. For Kira Obedinsky, her new iPad is everything. She's 12, after all. But the shiny screen is also a welcome distraction from an ordeal no 12-year-old should ever have to endure. Because just a few weeks ago, the young Ukrainian wasn't safe like she is now in Kyiv, but in a hospital run by Russian-backed separatists, forcibly separated from her family. When the Russians first invaded Mariupol, Kira's dad, Yevon, was still alive. Her mom had died just after she was born. And when Russian bombs started to fall, they sheltered in a neighbor's basement, she recalls. But they hit the house where we were staying, she says. We were buried in the cellar. Then the rescuers took us out of the wreckage. Her dad did not emerge, Kira told us. Now an orphan, she started to walk to try and find safety amidst chaos. And then another explosion from a mine. My friend saw something on the ground, she says, and she hit it accidentally with her boot. The military came after the explosions and took us to a hospital because we were bleeding. But in some ways, her journey was just beginning. In the chaos, she was picked up by soldiers she says spoke Russian and eventually brought to a Russian-held area in Donetsk. I was taken there at night, she says. They took shrapnel out of me, out of my ear. I screamed and cried a lot. It was shortly after this happened that CNN first learned about and reported Kira's story because Russia paraded it on state TV. State propagandists showed images of Kira in a Donetsk hospital and said she was being treated well. Convinced she was being mistreated, her family went public with her story, and it worked. A deal between Russia and Ukraine allowed her grandfather to travel to Russia and bring her back to Kyiv, where she told us what Russian state TV did not. It's a bad hospital there. The food there is bad, the nurses scream at you, the bed is bent like this. There wasn't enough space for all of us inside. None of that came out on Russian state TV. Her injuries have largely healed now, though she'll stay in the hospital a little longer. It was there that someone gave her that iPad. After a presidential visit came bearing gifts this week. She didn't love all that attention, though. So for now, she says she just wants to see her cat and spend time with her grandfather, recovering from the horrors of war one game at a time. And Jake, this is the absurdity of Russian state media propaganda, really, basically saying that this girl is some kind of example of Russia's humanity in this war, despite the fact that she's only in their care in Donetsk because the Russian army killed her father in a war that the Russian army started. Jake. Truly twisted. Matt Rivers reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much for that, that special report. Economists say they did not see this coming, the worst quarter for the American economy since the pandemic turned the world upside down in 2020. What this might mean for the chances of a recession, that's next.
In our money lead, a potential warning sign for America's economic recovery, the U.S. gross domestic product, or GDP, was down at an annual rate of 1.4% for the first three months of the year. Most economists had been expecting a positive growth number. Instead, that was the weakest quarter for the nation's economy in two years when COVID first hit. The GDP shrinking 1.4% in the first quarter means that, at least by that measure, the economy is smaller today than it was in December. That seems to be largely because of supply chain constraints. Imports to the U.S. have surged. Exports fell. So did government spending. But other indicators, such as hiring and consumer spending, grew. Let's bring in CNN's Richard Quest to try to make sense of this. Richard, the GDP stumbled and it was unexpected, but economists say this does not necessarily mean a recession is imminent. Explain this. No, but does it mean, is this the canary in the mine for what will happen either later this year or early into next? So the next quarter is very unlikely to be uh, negative as well. There were unique factors about this particular set of numbers. However, if we look, Jake, at the wider economic position, well, there is more cause for concern. And whilst the White House today has tried to spin this as a one-off, they cannot ignore the fact that more and more private economists, those working for big banks and the like, are now saying a recession in the U.S. is likely next year as the Fed raises interest rates. So it is a murky picture at which this particular number today whilst maybe not crucially important, is certainly giving a bell of alarm. Speaking of spin, um, we should note that, uh, as presidents do, uh, the ones, the numbers that are not all bad were emphasized by Mr. Biden today. President Biden, take a listen. I'm not concerned about a recession. I mean, you're always concerned about uh, a recession, but the GDP, you know, fell to 1.4 percent. But here's the deal. We also had last quarter consumer spending and business investment and residential investment increased at significant rates, both for leisure as well as hard products. Number one. Number two, the, we are unemployment is the lowest rate since 1970. How, how do you explain this mixed picture and what's your response well, to what you heard there? Well, he says he's not much not concerned too much about a recession. Well, there's not much he can do about it anyway to be blunt. Uh, First of all, there's the underlying economic situation. I made a list here, Jake. You've got inflation that's already in the system from the monetary policy of the last few years. You've got the supply shock from COVID. You've got the higher oil price as a result of the Ukraine war. You've got the Ukraine war itself and the problems of European slowdown. You've then got worries about what will happen next. And you've got China currently on shutdown. Now, put all that together, throw in the Fed, which is absolutely terrified now by an eight and a half percent inflation rate in the United States, the highest for 40 years, and talk of half a percentage point rate rises for the foreseeable next few meetings. No, there's not a lot the president could do even if he wanted to. This is a cake that is well and truly baking at the moment. The, the ingredients are all there, and it really just depends on how the Fed is going to move as a result of the way they see it rising at the moment. All right, Richard Quest, thank you so much for your insights as always. Coming up next, the news many parents of young kids have been waiting to hear. The first COVID vaccine potentially ready for children five years old and younger, but how long until shots can be approved to go into those little arms? Stay with us. 
BNR Health lead the long wait for parents eager to vaccinate their young children may soon be over. Moderna announcing today that the company is finally seeking emergency use authorization for its vaccine for kids aged six months to five years old. The company says its vaccine was 51% effective at preventing symptoms for kids under two and 37% effective for kids aged two through six. Results, Moderna says, are similar to those for adults during the Omicron wave. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia and a member of the FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee. And Dr. Offit, I have to say, these seem like pretty poor numbers. Uh, as a member of the Vaccine Advisory Board, how do you see these results? It's actually what you'd expect. I mean, we, we, um, the vaccines that are given, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, are all made to protect against that original strain, the virus that came out of, of China, the so-called ancestral strain. And, and the vaccines are very good at preventing serious disease um, caused by the subsequent strains, alpha, delta. But, but the, the, these vaccines are not as good at preventing against mild disease against the, the newer variants, the Omicron, BA2, these BA2 subvariants, because what those variants are, it's not so, so much that they're more contagious, they're immune evasive for protection against mild disease. So it's just what you would expect. What you would also expect is that these children would be protected against severe disease, as appears to be true also for adults. What sort of timetable should parents expect for the FDA to grant emergency approval? The Moderna applied today. So what's the timeline, do you think? Well, I think it's likely that the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee will consider this in June. Um, then what happens, assuming that we recommend it, and again, we need to see all the data to see if we do recommend it, but if we do, then it goes to the FDA, which then agrees with that recommendation or doesn't. Then it goes to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee, which then would agree or not. Once submitted or once considered by the FDA Advisory Committee, usually about a week or a week and a half, assuming everything goes smoothly. So the FDA won't consider the FDA advisory committee won't consider it until June. I mean, it's it's April right now. Why? I mean, does it take a month to review the data, or what's why the delay? The FDA makes those decisions. They they usually set aside dates for us in May, June, and 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 forward, and then they take those dates away as we get closer and they don't need them. Right now, the meetings that we all have that are scheduled are scheduled in June. Okay, I would just say I don't know why. I mean, you're you're. you're why not till June? I don't know. You would have to ask the FDA. I'm, I'm just on the advisory committee. Well, I'm uh, on behalf of two women on my staff who have young children under the age of five. Let me just say, if anybody from the FDA is listening, maybe before June would be good. Um, Pfizer says it expects to submit its vaccine trial data for children under five in the coming months. Fauci has said the FDA is weighing to whether to consider emergency use authorization for both vaccines for young kids at the same time. Could that end up even slowing down the process further, given that Pfizer hasn't even submitted anything yet? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand why. I mean, the the Moderna vaccine is a two-dose vaccine, which has now been completed and submitted to the FDA. The Pfizer vaccine stands a three-dose vaccine, and those trials are currently ongoing. We certainly have considered vaccines separately before. We've considered, you know, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine separately, the J&J vaccine separately. So I'm not sure why uh, the feeling is we can't do that Separately, um, the I think the American public could understand that there are differences, long differences among those or between those vaccines, as long as we explain it well. Dr. Fauci caused a, a bit of a stir after he appeared to declare the COVID pandemic over. He later clarified that he believes the country uh, is moving into a transitional phase of the pandemic. How do you see it? Are we still in the pandemic? How, how will we know when we're not? 
Well, so, so right now we have about 90% population immunity from vaccination or natural infection or both. And what you're seeing that is really hopeful is when you see outbreaks now, for example, an outbreak recently in New York City or an outbreak recently in Philadelphia, what you don't see subsequent to those outbreaks is a, a dramatic increase in hospitalizations or death. That's good. That's what you want. These vaccines are doing what you want them to do, which is to protect against severe illness. The definition of pandemic is that it changes the way you live, work, or play. The definition of moving beyond that into an endemic or epidemic period is that it doesn't, that you go about your day normally. And so, I mean, for example, two years before this pandemic hit, influenza caused 800,000 hospitalizations and about 60,000 deaths in the United States. That didn't change the way we lived, worked, or played because we accept that as, as, as a yearly epidemic. We'll get to that point with this virus as well. I just don't know what those numbers are of, of disease, hospitalization, and death that we're going to be willing to accept where we go about our life as normal um, and just accept that level of, of, uh, of illness. Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up next, mid-air stunt pilots armed with GoPros. How the feds are now trying to go after these sometimes hard-to-catch daredevils. Stay with us. International lead federal aviation authorities are landing hard on those involved in a rash of what the FAA says are made-for-clicks mid-air stunts. On Sunday, two pilots attempted a dangerous mid-air plane swap. It's a stunt that ended in a crash, though left both pilots unharmed. As CNN's Pete Montine reports for us now, many fear flying is the latest frontier for this over-the-top viral video culture desperate for attention. They are high-flying spectacles meant to attract millions of views. But now those behind them have become the newest targets of federal authorities. Just this month, the Federal Aviation Administration has cracked down following three incidents. Suspending the license of a YouTube pilot the FAA said flew too low, revoking the license of the YouTuber who parachuted from a supposedly crashing airplane, and opening an investigation into Sunday's plane swap skydiving stunt gone wrong that sent an out-of-control Cessna crashing into the Arizona desert. We're both here. We're both good to go. Everybody's safe and sound, and I guess that's the important part. Veteran skydivers Andy Farrington and Luke Aiken survived the stunt, which required two diving planes to be momentarily empty under the control of an autopilot. But in documents shared with CNN, days before, the FAA denied Aiken's request to be exempt from the rule that requires pilots at the controls all the time. Aiken's did not return our multiple requests for comment. I can't defend it. And I don't think they can either. Aviation journalist and skydiver Paul Bertarelli says the FAA will likely pursue larger punishment. Especially since the agency just revoked the license of Trevor Jacob, whose I Crashed My Plane YouTube video has been seen more than two million times. The FAA says Jacob purposely caused the crash, jumping out while holding a camera attached to a selfie stick. He needed someone to put the brake on him. Well, now the FAA's putting the brake on him. Now, experts fear flying has found itself at the center of over-the-top viral video culture, where competition for clicks is coming before good judgment. Everyone is trying to one-up, which means you have to do the most outlandish thing. You have to do the most eye-popping thing, something that's going to grab attention. Red Bull sponsored Sunday's plane swap event, and Hulu streamed it live both declined comment for this story. Trevor Jacob also did not reply to our request for comment. We did speak with YouTuber Trent Palmer, who is appealing the FAA decision to have his pilot's license suspended. Palmer says he was cited for low flying. 
was following FAA rules, though, he insists, to us today. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, Pete Montine, turning now to our pop culture lead, Carlton McCoy, is a classically trained chef, a master sommelier, and an expert traveler who has found himself at home everywhere from his grandmother's kitchen to the top restaurants in the world and all the variety of places in between. Now, in the all-new CNN original series, Nomad with Carlton McCoy, he takes us on a global exploration of food, music, art, and culture to discover the universal threads that connect us all. Here's a preview of Carlton's trip to the suburbs of Paris. This isn't like a tour or anything like that. I'm here to meet with someone super special, Chef Francis Oge. He's a chef de partie here at the Palace Kitchen. The house doesn't work like a regular restaurant or regular hotel. This is the first house of France, and we are like a display for the world. Chef Oge is a first-generation immigrant. He grew up in the suburbs, but he now cooks for the president and his wife. First of all, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'll be very honest with you, I was sort of like fanboying out on your Instagram. I also love like very ornate classical French cuisine. It's like about as classic as you can get, like food that people don't really know how to cook anymore. Today, he's preparing an old school French dish that we both love. How Actually, you have a millefeuille. Means like a, th- a thousand leaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now the host of Nomad, Carlton McCoy. Carlton, welcome to the CNN family. So you grew Hello. up in D.C. You learned how to cook from your grandmother. Out of high school, you got a scholarship to the Culinary Institute of America. You're only the second African-American in history to earn the prestigious title of Master Sommelier. So tell us how this prepared you to take viewers on this journey. Uh, first of all, Jake, I'll say I'm very impressed with your pronunciation of sommelier. It's not an easy <laughs> word. Uh, so I'm guessing you've uh, spent a little time in wine lists and restaurants. So, uh, you know, but no, I, I think from, from where I was raised in, in looking at where I am now, um, I think that journey has given me a pretty unique perspective on the world and being able to travel and, and I think cross thresholds of class and race and, and, and so forth and, and culture. Um, you know, I think my, my perspective of you in, in way of, of connecting with people uh, through cultural lenses, whether it be food or, or, or beverage or art or music, um, it's become something that's incredibly important to me. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to, to, I guess, sort of show the world how, how I tend to relate when I travel. And what do you want viewers to take away from your show? I want them to be challenged to explore outside of the known. Um, you know, when we look at Paris, the city that a lot of people think they really understand, uh, even if they've been there a ton of times. Um, but if you sort of step a little bit outside of those, those normal arrondissements where people tend to go, you realize that there are uh, parts of Parisian stories and history that aren't, aren't told. And they're, they're equally authentic Parisian identities. Uh, they just tend to be from immigrant groups, most of which have been there often for three, four generations. Uh, and for me, that, that really excited me, not to discount the identity of a normal Parisian, or what we'd call a normal Parisian. But it just added to, to the excitement and in, in, in what made Paris a very special city. So yeah, in this first episode, you, you visit the Paris suburbs, and there's this um, evolution of French identity underway. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the idea of what French culture is, mm-hmm. is changing, being redefined. So, so what did you find there? Well, we, we found what you often see when, again, anywhere in the world, you go outside of that normal purview, you realize that the concept of national identity uh, is evolving very quickly around the world. 
Um, and what we realized was that this Vietnamese family who had been in, in, um, in Paris for three, four generations, you know, that was also region. And we went to Saint-Denis, and we went to a, a soccer game where you had these families who had, again, been in the suburb for three or four generations. Ancestors came from different countries around Africa. That was also a very authentic Parisian experience. And what it does is I think instead of making people afraid of that, we wanted to open it up and say, look, this is an exciting new frontier for you to explore when you go to these places to say, hey, look, you know, this is now making its way into the mainstream, crossing um, the periphery of the city and making its way to, to, to downtown Paris so that it's now on the main stage as a really authentic part of Paris. And for me, I think that's something we should all be excited about, but also to look at the place where you live through that same lens and say, what am I not exposed to? What am I not exploring in my own hometown? Very interesting. Uh, I can't wait to watch. Everyone else, be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN original series Nomad with Carlton McCoy premieres Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Carlton, come back soon, and best of luck with the premiere. Coming up, the source of all that U.S. military equipment headed to Ukraine. CNN digs into the weapons business, how defense contractors are going to make a profit after this war is said and done, and why no one will ever really know where all that equipment ends up. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the struggle for control of Congress with midterms now only 194 days away. Democrats zeroing in on gas prices and student loans, while more Republicans focusing on classroom culture wars. Plus, the business of war, how some of the largest American defense contractors could soon be making bank on the U.S. weapons supply going to Ukraine. And leading this hour, explosions in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. The mayor quick to blame Russia, officials saying... At least 10 people were hurt. Fighting is also intensifying in the south and east. And that steel plant in Mariupol is said to be hit with the heaviest airstrikes since this invasion began. CNN's Scott McLean is joining us now live from Lviv, Ukraine. Scott, what do we know about these missile strikes on Kyiv tonight? Hey, Jake. Yeah, so it happened a little under four hours ago now. President Zelensky said that there were five missiles launched at the city. One of them struck an apartment building, a 25-story apartment building, causing extensive damage and a fire that was put out a little more than an hour later. Now, search and rescue operations are underway, say officials, but the initial tally is that six people were injured. President Zelensky says that this is a Russian attempt to humiliate, in his words, the United Nations, because, of course, he had just wrapped up a meeting with the U.N. Secretary General when these strikes took place. One of his advisors tweeted that on Tuesday, Antonio Guterres was in Moscow meeting with Putin and today explosions above his head. Postcard from Moscow. Now, the timing here is quite interesting, Jake, because you'll recall that earlier this week, Russia launched a series of strikes aimed at Ukraine's rail infrastructure in several places across the country. Those strikes came just hours after the U.S. delegation of the secretaries of state and defense had left the country safely by rail. Jake? Hmm. Local authorities in Mariupol are warning that the city is vulnerable to epidemics right now, given the appalling unsanitary conditions throughout the city. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so the mayor calls the conditions in the city right now medieval. And you can imagine perhaps up to 100,000 people still there. You have no power, no water. You've had people there now for more than two months. Add to that the lack of food, the rising temperatures, and also thousands potentially of uncollected bodies. And the city council says this is a recipe for 
disease outbreak, diseases like cholera, E. coli, dysentery, things like that. Um, even take war out of the equation, and the mayor says that people will die, plain and simple. Now, the UN Secretary General, as I mentioned earlier, was in Kyiv today, and he is making it his mission to broker some kind of a deal to get people out from under that sprawling steel plant in Mariupol. He left Moscow with at least an agreement in principle for Vladimir Putin to work with the UN, work with the Red Cross and Ukraine, to try to come to some kind of an agreement. And today, Guterres said that there are now intensive discussions taking place behind the scenes for this to happen. The conditions here, though, I have to say, are not exactly ideal. The police chief of Mariupol said that last night at the steel plant, there were some 50 different airstrikes, one of the heaviest nights uh, of uh, airstrikes. And now there's rubble in places. There are people trapped underneath of that rubble as well. New video from Ukrainian troops shows what the conditions are like, they say, underneath of that plant at what they're describing as a field hospital. Now, CNN can't verify the video or the volume of strikes. But again, even without those airstrikes, the conditions there are grim and getting worse. Jake. All right. Scott McClain reporting live for us from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you. The Ukrainian military says Russian forces are, quote, exerting intense fire on multiple battlefronts. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports, the dividing lines are rapidly shifting between Ukrainian resistance and Russian control. If Moscow had any surprises left in this war, it is along here. The other side of the river has been Russia's for weeks, but here, the western side, is caught in the fast-changing landscape of this week's push. That's the prize. Over there, the Dnieper River, up past which, on the left side bank here, the Russians are trying to push, wanting control of both sides of that vital part of Ukraine. Here in Novovoronskova, we are told there are a handful of Russian tanks just over a kilometre away on its outskirts, pushing, probing, but ultimately kept at bay by Ukrainian forces that still hold the town. Resilience here embodied in Ludmilla under the threat of rocket fire planting onions. I'm here until victory, she said. Children have gone, it's just her and her mother. Okay, her eight year old mother and her are staying here. Her mother says she's not going anywhere and she's not going to leave her alone. All her windows are blown out, she says. Ukrainian forces who don't want their positions filmed are dotted around the town, as too are the signs of innocent lives lost here. Rockets peeking out from under the water. And this boat in which 14 civilians tried to flee Russian occupation on April the 7th, four of them died when Moscow's troops opened fire when it was 70 metres out. Yet still, the desperate keep fleeing. This morning, these women left behind their men to defend their homes near Novovoronsovka. We ran, ran early in the morning, said Luda. They didn't let us out. We're shields for them. They don't let us out, and by foot and by bicycle we go. In the fields we ran. Our soldiers were two kilometres away, Nadezhda adds, and we ran to them. What they need, they take, she said. They take cars. They draw Zs on everything. As their new unwanted guests demanded milk and food at gunpoint, 
they had a glimpse of their warped mindset. They say they've come to liberate us, Luda said. These aggressors, that's what they told us. They say America is fighting here, but using the hands of Ukrainians to do it, that's what they say. Another claim to be fueled by the violence of the long war with separatists in the east. In general, the Donetsk militants say, you've been bombing us for eight years, now we bomb you. Across the fields, loathing and artillery swallow whole, once happy worlds. Now, things are certainly moving fast in this area of the Russian southern offensive. The Ukrainian military admitting that there has been some Russian progress around the town or the area of Mykolaiv. That's north of Kherson, the first city to Russia to occupy, where officials there, backed by Russia's troops there, talk about the ruble being introduced in a matter of days, Russia's currency, and also freshly installed pro-Russian military uh, leaders there in that town, talking about how it cannot go back to its, quote, Nazi past. That's essentially the kind of rubbish notion uh, put around by Russia that they're fighting Nazis here in Ukraine. So definite moves by Russia to stamp its control on Kherson and try and push around through the southern countryside here. Whether this town I'm standing in, Jake Krivirik, the hometown of President Vladimir Zelensky, is their ultimate target, we don't know. They may end up heading further east. That's unclear, but there's a lot moving in the open countryside we're seeing here. With that Dnieper River, such a vital part, splitting it in two. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh reporting live for us. Thank you so much. President Biden today calling on Congress to approve a $33 billion supplemental funding bill to support Ukraine. President saying he wants it, quote, as quickly as possible. Let's discuss. Caitlin Collins, let me start with you. Um, Does President Biden have a sense of whether or not this will pass, whether or not it will have bipartisan support? Jake, I think generally here at the White House, they are confident that something will pass, but when something passes remains to be seen, because that's where things get complicated after President Biden made this announcement saying that they want this $33 billion in funding for Ukraine. They believe that's what would last Ukraine through the end of the fiscal year, so about the next five months or so. But of course, it is now in the hands of Congress. It's out of the hands of the White House, and so it remains to be seen how they handle this, because so far, Congress has had this issue with COVID-19 funding, with immigration, these deep disagreements agreements that have happened on Capitol Hill. And so that's where it comes into place, how they try to pass this request from President Biden. Generally, of course, lawmakers have been very supportive of sending weapons to Ukraine, of sending humanitarian and economic assistance to Ukraine. And that's what's included in this $33 billion package. But the question is, do they pass that package by itself? Do they try to pass it in tandem with the COVID-19 funding that the White House has also requested? Today, the White House said that they don't have to go together. Of course, that is something that some people People inside the White House would like to see to go together, but that might make it more complicated. So that's the big question. And of course, Jake, when this passes is critical because the White House says President Biden only has about $250 million left in his drawdown authority. That's basically meaning $250 million worth of weapons that he can send to Ukraine. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon, uh, Democratic and Republican sources tell CNN that the goal is to, to pass this package before Memorial Day, about a month away. Uh, How quickly can the aid move to Ukraine uh, if and when it passes? The goal of this weapons package, the Biden administration has said, is to make sure weapons keep flowing in an uninterrupted fashion. We've already seen the administration dramatically increase the speed at which this is possible, a process that used to take weeks from figuring out what's on the list to reviewing, to getting approval, to sign off, to actually sending, is now down to, in some cases, at least 72 hours. And the U.S. is flying 8 to 10 flights a day, 
of military equipment and other equipment uh, towards Ukraine to get into that fight as quickly as possible. So that's the goal, to keep it going at that speed. And there's billions of dollars here, first in drawdown authority, which pulls from DOD stocks, but also in the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which is buying it from arms manufacturers and having it go right to Ukraine. Yeah, and, and Caitlin, today the Biden administration also outlined a proposal to make it easier for the U.S. government to liquidate assets seized from Russian, Russian oligarchs and use that money to support Ukraine. What more do we know about that proposal? Yeah, this would be a pretty big expansion of the legal powers that the United States has. And what Biden wants is for Congress to give him the authority to, when they have these Russian yachts, these luxury homes, whatever it is that these Russians have, and they seize them, that then they could liquidate it, basically sell them off and then use what they make from that as resources to go to Ukraine. And this is something that they've been hinting at behind the scenes and publicly. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said they wanted to make sure these assets didn't just go back to the Russians. That's something that Merrick Garland had said as well. The, of course, the attorney general. Uh, the question of whether or not it ultimately makes it in this package, if it does pass, remains to be seen. It was in a non-binding resolution that the House passed because I think it's what they're saying is that this is important, that they make sure that the Russians, these Russian oligarchs who President Biden has talked about benefit from, from Putin's brutality, don't receive any more of these benefits in the way that they have. If it does get passed, Jake, of course, it would create a very interesting precedent going forward. And Oren, today the NATO Secretary General said NATO is prepared to support Ukraine for years in this war if necessary. Years. Is the Pentagon able to sustain this current flow of weapons and aid potentially for years? As they've sent in all of these weapons from javelins to howitzers to other different types of equipment, they have certainly kept an eye, the Pentagon that is, has certainly kept an eye on U.S. stocks and inventories, making sure that in sending all of this equipment over, they insist it does not affect U.S. military readiness. But they have been aware, since this didn't end in the days or weeks that the Kremlin may have wanted, this could stretch on for months or even longer. So that's something the U.S. is keeping a very close eye on, not only in what goes to Ukraine, but in its own stocks, its own reserves of weaponry in Europe and throughout. Caitlin and Oren, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the pressure on Poland, particularly on schools in Poland, as that country struggles to make room for Ukrainian refugees and their kids. Plus, the political fight for controlling Congress and how that has Democrats and Republicans today going to new lengths. Stay with us. In our world lead, more than 5.3 million people have fled Ukraine since Russia's full-fledged invasion began in late February, according to the United Nations. The majority of those refugees have headed to neighboring Poland. And while Warsaw has proudly accepted hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing the war, CNN's Erica Hill reports some schools are running out of tables and chairs to accommodate this unprecedented influx of refugee children. New school, new language, new country. We follow the needs. When we opened these classes, we did not know what would be in a week, what would be in a month. There are now 50 Ukrainian refugees enrolled at this Warsaw High School, bringing the student population up to 700. It's Olena's first day. Laisha is a few weeks in and happy to be back in class. It's given me some uh, space or give me the feeling of uh, safety that I'm safe here, I'm in my normal life. In Warsaw alone, the mayor's office estimates the city has taken in more than 100,000 children. With 17,000 already enrolled in public school, the question now is how many more will come? 
it's a big problem for us because we don't know how many uh, students uh, go to Warsaw and go to our schools. Warsaw was already short 2,000 teachers before Russia invaded Ukraine. The city needs more staff and money. To jest, uh, this is a huge challenge for us. To a good heart, willingness to help, and volunteering are not enough. And yet, they're finding ways to make it work. <laughs> Polish students are paired with their new Ukrainian classmates. We use a lot of Google Translate. Local families have donated supplies. The school provides breakfast and lunch. In Lviv, Mariana taught German. Officially, she's now a tutor, yet it's clear this mom of three, who also fled the war, is so much more. We don't just speak Ukrainian. We speak the language of emotions and the language of what we've gone through. Comfort amidst the uncertainty. Is it good to meet other Ukrainian kids? Yes, uh, because you, you're not uh, alone uh, at school and uh, you can uh, speak in uh, uh, your uh, language. Uh, uh, so it's, yeah, it's good. While there are more smiles every day, the principal says he can't forget what lies beneath. We have some who escaped in the middle of the night in their pajamas from the basement where they were. While school is a welcome distraction, it's also a reminder of how much their lives have changed. In our hearts, we want to start the new school year in September at home. And we really hope for that. And Jake, just to give you a sense of what their days are like, the principal shared a story with me. He said the kids aren't supposed to look at their phones during class, but one day a boy picked his up and he learned that his school back in Ukraine had been hit. At that moment, the rest of the class picked up their phones. They started looking for information on their classmates' school and also checking on their own families and their own schools. And Jake, that became the lesson for the day. All right, Erica Hill reporting live from Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much. Coming up next... The business of war, how U.S. defense contractors stand to make big bucks as the U.S. supplies Ukraine with weapons. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the Biden administration asked Congress for $33 billion additional dollars in aid for Ukraine. And while that includes funding for security, economic and humanitarian aid, it will also, of course, mean lucrative new deals for U.S. defense contractors. And look, one can support military aid to Ukraine, and also wonder, who's going to be getting rich off of this? CNN's Alex Marquardt takes a closer look. As Russian troops poured across Ukraine's border, kicking off the Russian invasion in late February, something else was happening at the same time in New York. The stock prices of the biggest U.S. weapons manufacturers spiked, many eventually climbing to their highest point in years. War is good business for parts of the economy. Uh, historically. It doesn't mean the defense contractors cynically want it. Uh, I know a lot of people in these companies, and they're as heartbroken by the war in Ukraine as the next person. But yes, war is good business for certain parts of the economy. 
The latest American weapons shipments to Ukraine include systems like scores of 155-millimeter howitzers that haven't been sent before, switchblade and ghost drones, hundreds of armored personnel carriers joining the now well-known and brutally effective javelins and stingers on Ukraine's battlefields. Sometimes we will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. Javelins are made in part by Raytheon, whose CEO said last month they do expect to benefit from the need to replenish U.S. stocks. We don't apologize for, um, for making these systems, making these, these weapons. The fact is they are incredibly effective in deterring and dealing with the threat that the Ukrainians are seeing today. Eventually, we'll have to replenish it, and we will see a benefit to the business over the next coming years. Raytheon, along with seven other weapons companies, including Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman, met earlier this month with top Pentagon brass in a classified meeting about not just supplying Ukraine, but replenishing U.S. and allied inventories. I'm not going to deny that these kinds of conflicts uh, can help certain companies. It's, it, it's the reality of the situation, but we should also be glad uh, to the extent we want to help Ukraine. We should be glad we have this industrial base that's capable of producing this stuff on short notice with such high quality. The Biden administration alone has contributed almost $3.5 billion of military aid to Ukraine in the two months of Russia's war. Compared to the Pentagon's 2023 requested budget for weapons, that's just 1.2 percent. Critics say the Pentagon and contractors could use the Ukraine conflict to justify bigger budgets and more weapons sales. My concern is when those weapons are replenished, uh, will it be at a reasonable cost? Uh, Will the contractors gouge the taxpayer? Uh, And also, will there be ancillary changes in our uh, military spending that don't really relate to Ukraine but are used because of the fear related to the Russian invasion uh, to spend on things that they really don't have to do with the defense of Europe. There are also concerns about where the billions of dollars of weapons are going. Once they cross the border into Ukraine, officials say the U.S. has no way to track the weapons, nor, of course, where they end up in the long run. Once it gets into Ukrainian hands, it's up to the Ukrainian armed forces to decide where it goes, what unit gets it, when, where it's stored, if it's stored at all temporarily. That is up to the Ukrainians to decide, not the United States. In the $33 billion of funding that President Joe Biden just requested today for Ukraine, over a third of it, $11.4 billion, was allocated to replenishing the U.S. weapons inventory and for Ukraine to buy more weapons. That's where this new business for these weapons companies will come from, Jake. And the concern now is whether these companies will take advantage of this crisis of this moment to raise their prices. Interesting. Alex Marquardt, thank you so much for that report. I appreciate it. A campaign pledge that helped get President Biden elected. Coming up next, Mr. Biden's response today when asked if he plans to cancel thousands of dollars of student loan debt. Stay with us. In our politics lead with the midterms quickly approaching, as inflation and gas prices surge, Democrats are going to need some serious fuel to avoid catastrophic election losses, experts say. Today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer laid out their plan to win over voters by lowering gas prices, and they have picked a common enemy. Take a listen. What is causing the increase in gas prices? Number one is market manipulation and big oil not giving a break. That is what we're focusing on. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us live from the Hill. Lauren, how are Democrats able to stay on message on this? 
Well, that was the message from leadership, Jake, but the message from some rank and file earlier this week was Senator Joe Manchin held a bipartisan meeting with Republicans to come up with an all of the above energy strategy. And that really reveals here that after four months, when Manchin torpedoed Build Back Better, you still have Democrats grappling with what the message is. Inflation is a problem. Immigration is a problem. And yet Democrats are all over the map in terms of how to fix those issues. I asked Senator Manchin if he thought that Democrats had a cohesive strategy. He said, I've always had a cohesive message. It's not in sync with the other 49. And that is something that you are hearing from members who say there's not much time left to get something together. You have a lot of members who are on the front line saying, it's up to me at this point to go back to my district, go back to my state, run against Washington and speak out for whatever I think my voters need. That is the strategy a lot of Democrats are deploying because they say there isn't a cohesive message right now from their leadership or from Democrats at large. And Lauren, Senate Republicans and Democrats are sparring over Ukraine funding. They're pointing fingers at each other for jamming up this process. Is Biden's $33 billion proposal going to pass? It's going to take some time, Jake. You heard Republicans today say that they want to look through this proposal. They have concerns about the divide between military funding as well as humanitarian funding, saying they think Ukraine is going to need more money for weapons than might be in this supplemental. You also have to write this legislation that takes a lot of time. So don't expect this to come up next week, especially because the House is already gone for a week-long recess. Senate Democrats and Republicans are going to continue having discussions next week. But this could take several more weeks, Jake, to put together, despite the fact that the president said he wanted this done quickly. All right, Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's bring in our panel. Naira, uh, welcome back. Good to have you. So let me ask you, you just heard Democrats Their message is going after big oil, Pelosi and Schumer, going after big oil for alleged market manipulation. Uh, Should that be their focus, do you think, for the midterms? What we've heard from President Biden so far was Putin's price hike, right, trying to say that inflation and rising gas prices, which were happening before the war in Ukraine, were to blame on this war in Russia. And that's that's not really holding up, especially as this war continues and the American people want relief. We know that oil and gas companies are making record profits and they are choosing to pass off uh, that money to their investors to pay off their own debt. It is not reflected in the sticker price at the pump. So to be able to direct American ire at gas prices away from the president onto oil and gas companies is not only sound economic policy, it could also be a politically winning message. Maybe. Uh, Jonah, another huge issue landing on Democrats' lap right now is, is immigration, especially the, uh, all the illegal immigration. President Biden uh, stirred up opposition on both sides of the aisle uh, when he tried to get rid of this Trump-era rule that allowed a quicker deportation of, of individuals um, because of the pandemic, known as Title 42. I want you to take a listen to Arizona Democratic Congressman Greg Stanton grilling the Department of Homeland Security Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas earlier today. Putting more pressure on a system that can't handle it carries a significant risk of creating a full-scale humanitarian crisis on American soil, for which the White House and your department will be solely responsible. No person who cares about migrants should want that. It's clear to me that the federal government is not prepared, not even close. Just to remind people, that's a Democrat. Right. So if that's what a swing state Democrat is saying, how, how cogent an issue do you think this is? And, and is it a bigger, is it as big an issue if you're not in a, in a border state? 
I think it's becoming a, a, a oh, look, we just had uh, Maggie Hassan, who's running for Senate reelect in New Hampshire, right. do an ad from the border, right? So this has national residence for all sorts of things. I think part of the problem that Biden and the Democrats have generally is it, we're, I feel like I should have brought my Fonzie lunchbox, right? Because it's like 1970s all over again, where every bad problem seems like a metaphor for other bad problems. Inflation seems out of control. It is. Prices are out of control. Immigration seems out of control. International affairs seem out of control. And you can't uh, just sort of isolate anyone without, and, and, and contain it as an issue without taking into a fact that just generally it feels like people aren't in charge and the Democrats don't know what they're doing. I'm not saying the Republicans do know what they're doing, but they have the, lux- the luxury of being able to say, you guys own all three branches of government right now. It's on you to fix it. And the Title 42 thing um, is a, it's a, it's a real catch-22 for him because on the one hand, the Democrats definitely need the base to be roused and show up. On the other hand, if they want to win moderates and centrists, they have to do things on immigration that the base does not want them to do, very much like the student loan problem. And I don't think there's a way to sort of cut the Gordian knot or fix the Kobayashi Maru or whatever you know, <laughs> reference you want to use here. Let's talk about student loan debt, because now you're, here's, here's President uh, Biden's comments today on student loan debt. Take a listen. I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness, and uh, I'll have an answer on that in the next couple of weeks. What do you think? This election cycle, Democrats are going to have to figure out who they want to be. Are they going to continue to try to win back non-college-educated white men? If, if they're not, then yes, there's a very easy appeal to make to millennial voters, to black women who carry the majority of student loan debt. It's 43% of college-educated people have student loan debt, 90% of black people, right? That is a significant coalition that Biden can tap into if it's a play of playing to the base and having those voters turn out. Student loan debt for this generation is a pocketbook issue. Yeah. Jonah, um, I want to get your reaction to to this uh, from Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney. Uh, Quote, Democrats considering forgiving trillions in student loans, other bribe suggestions, forgive auto loans, forgive credit card debt, forgive mortgages, and put a wealth tax on the super rich to pay for it all. What could possibly go wrong. Uh, is, is that the right response for Republicans trying to counter, counteract this? But look, I think Mitt Romney makes a very good point about auto loans. Most people don't have student debt because most people don't go to college. And most of the people who do have student debt have manageable amounts of it. A lot of the student debt has to, go, has to do with grad schools and other, and, and other sort of, I don't want to say irresponsible, but you know, things that I, I don't feel that the average taxpayer should be on the hook for. If you wanted to actually have a broad-based populist loan forgiveness program, and I'm not supporting this, forgive people's auto loans for people who make less than $50,000 a year and buy non-luxury cars, because that would actually go to where, you know, that would have a much more democratic and egalitarian appeal. The problem is is that the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the party of higher education, of educated elites, and and when you have people like AOC and Elon Omar being the, the faces of student loan forgiveness... It is a, and I don't, I don't mean this in any sort of, sort of ethnic way. I just mean in terms of, of you have elite, young, elite, radical progressives who are claiming to be um, taking this very sort of egalitarian position when, in fact, student loan forgiveness by its very nature benefits people who already have a hand, already have 
a better shot at life because we've told them, go to college and you'll do better. And college graduates make more money than non-college well, That's graduates. the key part, right? The cultural disconnect that we're getting at here is that a generation was told that if they went to college, they would get good paying jobs. Instead, they have been saddled with predatory loans where you can graduate from college and 20 years later, you have not even tackled the principal in all of your payments, right? Millennials are the first generation that is working longer hours, making less money and unable to uh, advance economically compared to a previous generation. So it is, it's not just a matter of you know, are you, did you know what you signed up for and are you paying your debt, right, the, that you owe? The American government does take into account predatory housing loans and, and has regulations in place to address that. These are predatory student loans with promises of a better future saddled onto 18-year-olds who are given no fiscal education of what any of this actually means. And speaking of education, I do want to get your thought, Jonah, about Governor Kemp signed several education bills today. One of the new laws limits discussions on race. It seems to be right out of the playbook of what we've seen from Governor DeSantis in Florida. Do Democrats need to counteract these bills, these pushes from Republican governors, you think? I don't know how, right? David Shore, the political consultant, one of his arguments is is that there are just some issues that don't help Democrats very well, and so maybe they just shouldn't talk about those issues. It seems to me that this is one of them. I I haven't studied the actual bills. Lots of people misreport how a lot of these bills, what they actually do or don't do. But at the end of the day, what, what Kemp is trying to do is just win a primary, and this is signaling at that level. And my hunch is if they're as bad as some people say, there'll be court challenges and they'll, they, they won't become, they won't last long. But, uh, you know, the press releases read fine to me. But that, press releases for a lot of laws read fine to me until you actually look at the details. What Kemp is doing, what DeSantis is doing in Florida, right, they're, they're trying to make, again, that big swing at the culture argument to play to a conservative base. It's different to some degree than what Trump did, because it's not about personal vendettas, right? It's about changing the direction, of course, of society. But, you know, swinging at Disney, like if you're going to come for Big Mouse, you really should actually know what you're doing and, and be able to win it. So uh, that's a challenge that, unfortunately, when they come, trying to come for these big conglomerates that uh, you know, every family watches and knows and understands Disney, uh, they're up against something very different and more powerful than the Democratic Party. Nayara, Jonah, thank you so much. Good to see you both. Uh, My next guest just came out of a meeting at the White House. Her message to her country, a close ally of Russia. Stay with us. In our world lead, as nearly all of Europe joins together to condemn Putin's unprovoked war against Ukraine, Belarus has only strengthened ties with Moscow and become a key launching pad for Russia's air and ground operations against Ukraine. Belarus is led by President Alexander Lukashenko. He's a man described by critics as Putin's puppet. He brutally cracked down on mass protests after he claimed victory in a widely disputed election in 2020, an election that had been marred by fraud. Joining us now is the person who challenged Lukashenko in that election, Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tihanouskaya. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You've met with senior congressional leaders, both Democrats and Republicans, and you've just come from meetings at the State Department and with White House officials. What did you guys all talk about? Uh, so, first of all, I uh, really get to see how 
the USA see the situation in Belarus, how important our country in uh, this war against uh, dictatorship. Uh, we updated the information about Belarus, about participation of uh, Belarus in this war, that Lukashenko dragged our country in this war with Ukraine, uh, but Belarusian people are against the war. Uh, Belarusian people are fighting uh, with Ukrainians uh, against uh, Russian invasion. Uh, Belarusian people are uh, very active inside the country. They are disrupting railways to stop Russian equipment uh, going to Ukraine. But we need support, we need assistance in our fight. And uh, on the one hand, we have to create multiple points of pressure on the regime uh, to sanction regime because they share the full responsibility for this war. On the other hand, uh, we need assistance to uh, anti-war movement, to our resistance, to civil society of Belarus to keep strong, to, to uh, keep healthy. And of course, political isolation of Lukashenko is extremely necessary. And I am pleased to hear that sometimes uh, here in the USA, Lukashenko is still called as president. He wasn't elected uh, by our people. He usurper of the power and he is a legitimate person in our country. So you've called for the U.S. and the European Union to place even harsher sanctions on uh, Lukashenko for his support of Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, what did you discuss with Biden administration officials and congressional leaders to get today? What more would you like to see happen? So, uh, as I said, Lukashenko has to share the full responsibility for this war in Ukraine. And yes, we are uh, lobbying for stronger sanctions on Lukashenko's regime, the same strength uh, uh, as uh, on Russia, but different on structure. So uh, my- uh, also, we... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, again, we, we need more support to civil society, more support to our resilience, because uh, our active people inside Belarus are fighting uh, against regime. Now they're fighting also against uh, Kremlin, because now our country is de facto under military occupation of uh, Russian troops. And we uh, ask our allies to demand immediate withdrawal of Russian troops from our territory. So much of Europe depends on Russian energy. Do you think this war can ever end as long as European allies, such as Germany, are still pumping billions of dollars into the Russian economy? This is a challenge for democratic countries as well. But I see unity. I see decisiveness of a democratic world to um, resist uh, dictatorship. And I'm sure that uh, uh, the democratic countries will put all the efforts, you know, to um, somehow survive without uh, uh, Russian gas, without Russian oil. Uh, I think that the world is prepared to... uh, you know, to, to, to uh, live somehow without, uh, you know, uh, Russian, Russian uh, supplies. So Belarus, uh, as you know, is providing, uh, the government of Belarus is imp- providing important aid to, to Putin in his war against Ukraine. Uh, and Belarus has been a key strategic staging ground for Russian troops. How would you characterize support among the people of Belarus for this participation, for this assistance in Russia's war against Ukraine? Uh, Lukashenko dragged our country into this war uh, 
but Belarusian people are against uh, this war. Our people, our soldiers don't want to participate, don't want to join a uh, Russian army because we, uh, you know, Ukrainians are our friends, they are our brothers and sisters, and um, Belarusian soldiers don't have morale to fight against them. They don't understand why they have to die for uh, ambitions of uh, Lukashenko and, and uh, Putin. And the uh, Belarusian people wanted to show our support to Ukrainian people with th these uh, active actions inside Belarus. You know that for a year and a half we have been fighting against dictatorship and uh, we have uh, thousands of political prisoners. But despite of this, uh, Belarusian people went to the streets, uh, hundreds of thousands of people went to the street to show their attitude to this war. Thousands have been detained and tortured in jails. Uh, but we see that it's our obligation to support Ukraine because uh, uh, the fate of Ukraine and fate of Belarus are deeply interconnected. Without free Ukraine, there will be no free Belarus and vice versa. Svetlana Tihanuskaya, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. In our health lead, a blow to the tobacco industry that health officials say could save thousands of lives in the United States. Today, the FDA proposed a new rule to ban menthol from cigarettes and flavored cigars in the U.S. Highly addictive studies show people who smoke menthol cigarettes have a harder time quitting compared to quitting regular cigarettes. This means people smoke them longer, which puts them, of course, at greater risk for tobacco-related diseases. Tobacco companies have aggressively marketed menthol products to young people and to African Americans. Menthols are the cigarette of choice for 85% of black smokers compared with 30% of white smokers. The ban is not yet in effect. If finalized, the FDA cannot and will not enforce the ban on individual consumers. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.